a really quick and exciting announcement to make. The Menopause and Cancer podcast is now also on YouTube, and I'm so excited that more people now get to watch our conversations. So the link to the YouTube channel is in our show notes. Please go and subscribe to the channel so that more people who need to hear our conversations are able to find them. Thank you. Hi, I'm Danny Bennington and welcome to my podcast. This podcast is for anyone who's been affected by cancer and menopause. I'll be speaking to special guests and menopause experts to help us find solutions to our symptoms and of course address the greater picture. We're going to talk about everything from mental health to physical health, sexual health to bone health and everything in between. Nothing is off limits. Welcome. Hello everyone and welcome to today's episode on the podcast. You know those days when you think you're really organized and you've got everything planned and then everything totally changes. That's exactly one of those mornings I've had and Sarah had our guest on today's episode. One of the things I love most about the content uh, for this podcast is we speak to loads of scientists, we speak to clinicians, I speak to patients, and with all of the information that all of these different groups of people bring, we can sort of make sense of what works for us and what we want to do, what our next steps could be. Today on the podcast, I'm talking to Dr. Sarah Berry. She's an associate professor at King's College London, and she's run over more than 30 human nutrition studies. And so as a researcher, as an associate professor, I really want to tap into Dr. Sarah Berry's brain of what the evidence shows us of how perhaps we can change and adapt how and what we're eating once we're in menopause after cancer. Now, I know her answers will be slightly different to someone who is a clinician and sitting in front of many, many women in the role of perhaps as a dietitian or nutritionist. And I know my conversation would be totally different if I speak to one of you who might have gone down a real path of changing your diet, wanting to tinker with your diet, wanting to really biohack almost your life. And I love bringing everyone's different expertises together. Now, for the episode today, I actually wanted to talk about a totally different topic to Sarah. But when I spoke to her in the pre-chat before pressing record for the podcast, we both realized that actually that wasn't what we needed to address. What we really needed to address was the bigger picture and what has Sarah learned from running more than 30 human nutrition studies. And I think that's really exciting. So we're going to talk a little bit less about the nitty gritty and what's on your plate and what exactly can you eat to lessen a symptom, but it's more the bigger picture. And I can't wait for Sarah to explain to us that actually what's on your plate is only a small portion of everything that we need to address and everything that we can look at so that we can help figure out what our next steps could be. So let's welcome Sarah in. Hello, Sarah. I'm delighted to be here. We've totally changed the subject of what we're going to talk about, and I love it. I love it, love it, love it. Tell me a little bit about you and what you are passionate about. Well, thank you, Danny, for allowing me to do a total U-turn. So yeah, I'm Sarah Berry. I'm 
an academic at King's College London, where I've actually worked for over 25 years. And I've been uh, spending my time during that 25 years studying how diet impacts cardiometabolic health. So that's basically looking at how diet impacts our risk of cardiovascular disease and other metabolic factors that are associated with diseases like type 2 diabetes. And I've run a lot of randomized control trials. So these are trials where I have healthy humans coming in, eating all sorts of different foods and and different diets, and then looking at how this modulates certain risk factors related to cardiovascular disease. And then about five years ago, I entered the world of personalized nutrition. So I started working with the company that are now Zoe, which are a healthcare tech company, in order to really try and disentangle the complexity of who we are as human beings and how that shapes our own individual responses to food. Mm, It's fascinating. And I'll tell you a little bit about who all of us are, because I feel like I speak for my audience because (laughs) I'm one of them. We've been really quite disgruntled over the last few years when the menopause conversation has taken on like a boom in the UK, especially. And there was so much talk about hormone replacement therapy and and just the menopause in general. But we have really felt excluded. All of your listeners today on the show have had a cancer diagnosis of some sort. And we're then thrown into menopause through surgery, through radiotherapy, through perhaps a long-term endocrine treatment. For me, it was surgery. So I knew my menopause was coming. Some women are put on endocrine therapy and their whole life really changes. Not only have to we grapple with the cancer diagnosis, but we also then have all these side effects of menopause. And what all of us have in common and what we have very much in common with you, Sarah, is every single one of us is asking ourselves, shall I eat differently? Something has changed. We know our gut health maybe has changed. Our bowels have changed. We're talking diarrhea and maybe constipation through treatment. But then even years after, we're feeling our bodies different. And how shall I eat? And how can I optimize what I eat? And it would be great to hear from you a little bit more about your passion and how we can sort of make those two connect. Yeah, I mean, I'd love to dive straight into that with telling you a little bit about our PREDICT program of research that's explored how much variability there is between individuals in how food impacts our health and also has really highlighted the differences between pre, peri and postmenopausal women as well. So this um, programme of research called the Zoe Predict programme of research is a a huge programme of personalised nutrition research, which is really trying to work out what is it that makes how you respond versus how I respond versus how my husband might respond to food so different. And firstly, what we've seen from this program of research is that there's about 20 fold difference in how different people respond to food. And, you know, that's huge. Typically in nutrition research and my previous 25 years of running nutrition research studies, typically I always report the mean, the average response, you know, this diet impacts the group of people in this way. But actually how we respond is so, so variable. And so what we've been looking at is what what causes this variability? And something that I think is really interesting and relevant to the people listening here is that what we see is that men and women are on a very different trajectory in their health responses 
to food up until the menopause. So if we look, for example, at your circulating blood sugar response after you've had a high carbohydrate meal, um, which we know is really important in terms of a risk factor for cardiovascular disease and type two diabetes, women tend to have a lower blood sugar response to a carbohydrate meal than men do up until about the age of 45, 50. What happens is, is then women reach the age of 50, become peri and postmenopausal, and suddenly they actually catch up with men and in some places overtake men. So we're doing really well in terms of what we call our metabolic health up until the menopause. But then unfortunately, we catch up and often overtake how men are doing in this. And this translates along to risk factors for chronic diseases. So what we see also postmenopausally is an increase in blood pressure. We see a sudden increase in blood lipids. So we think of these as, for example, our, our total cholesterol, our, our LDL cholesterol, which is our bad cholesterol. We also see differences in body composition. So I'm sure this is something all your listeners are very aware of. And I'm sure you've discussed um, in previous podcasts, you know, that weight that suddenly uh, deposited around the belly, which we know is metabolically really quite unfavorable as well. And we see differences in people's insulin and glucose sensitivity as well. And this happens around the point of the menopause. And it's really interesting when we track this on a figure, if imagine a graph where you've got two lines, which are showing the kind of trajectory of a male's increase in all of these different risk factors and how they go up with age, you've got this nice steady line. With women, what you have is this quite low steady line. And then suddenly you get this tick up around mm. the menopause. And this is what we've been looking at. We've been looking at how variable this is with peri and postmenopausal women, how big the effect is, also how it relates to the food that they're having, how it impacts sleep, how sleep relates to this as well. And looking at kind of what strategies could be put in place, particularly for people that are choosing not to take HRT, is diet another means that we can reduce some of these unfavorable metabolic health effects? Mm. And obviously, if I imagine these two graphs that you've just um, described so beautifully, because I've quite got it in my head thinking, <laughs> yeah, that's for sort of the average woman who enters perimenopause and menopause. Yeah. Naturally, it's around the age of 51 in the UK. Yeah. But many of our listeners are pre that time. So say I was 33 when I was diagnosed with breast cancer, chemotherapy put me into menopause, my period stopped, I never even realized it was menopause. That's how poorly educated on the female body I was then, but period stopped. So I was going through a temporary menopause then and by the age of 39, that was it for me, my ovaries came out and uh, surgery meant I became menopausal. And so that's a good 10 years, 12 years, and in some cases even more, that we enter this unfavorable phase, really, mm -hmm. as you say, from your metabolic rate. And so that worries me. And I think that worries a lot of my listeners. And so, of course, we're sitting at home thinking, what can we do? What can we do? From your research, have you had good enough evidence to say, actually, we can counterbalance that a little bit? Or are you still unsure at the moment? Yeah, so I think what's good is to perhaps categorise how I often think of the work that we're doing at yeah. Zoe on menopause into two slightly different groups. So 
we're doing a lot of work looking at menopause and symptoms and the relationship of symptoms with diet. So by this, I mean the burdensome symptoms that get a lot of media attention. That's great because people are talking about, you know, sleep, brain fog, hot flushes. But then we're also doing a lot of work, which is what we've just been talking about, looking at disease risk. So looking at in addition to these really burdensome symptoms, something that I don't think we talk about often enough in the general community is how, like you've explained, that you become postmenopausal through whatever you know circumstances and you've lost estrogen and therefore your risk of these chronic diseases like cardiovascular disease, like type 2 diabetes, you know, hypertension, et cetera, does go up. And I think that there are certain strategies that can be put in place to help alleviate to a certain extent or attenuate. But with the loss of estrogen, unless we're replacing it through hormone replacement therapy, you cannot replace the estrogen through dietary means. What you can try and do is approach diet and lifestyle strategies in order to attenuate some of the increased risk that you have. Yeah, because, for example, women who are put on an aromatase inhibitor, they often have a 20% higher risk of um, uh, their uh, blood cholesterol going up. And so we know so many things then work against us, yet we need those often life-saving treatments. And and it's, it's a real sort of mental dilemma we're in. What's really important for me is to always show women who are listening to this that we do have options. And sometimes yeah. it doesn't need to be a huge diet overhaul, and we need to just eat differently, totally, but there are small hacks. And when we are consistent, they can actually make a big change. And I know you've uh, seen some of those things in your studies that we can actually, by what we're doing on a daily basis, really change what's going on inside. Yeah. And I think it's really important at this point to mention that our our knowledge in this area is still in its infancy. And there has been so little funding into menopause research. And this is what's really exciting about the research that we've done, although, you know, it's only a drop in the ocean of what needs to be done. And Mm. over the past 30 years or 25 years that I've been running clinical trials, I've run 30 different randomized clinical trials. Only one of them has included women. And it's only since I started the Zoe Predict research that we've been including women now in my research. Wow. (laughs) Wow. That's mind blowing. Well, all of these other studies just used men because they're much easier to sort of analyze because they haven't got the hormone hormones so, or what? Yeah, so, wow. You know, it, it's it's really unfortunate. And I am proud now that I do have the ability to study women and particularly study what's happening, you know, pre versus post and what dietary strategies can help. The reason in my instance, and I think this applies to many researchers that we've typically studied men is historically there's been the case that until maybe the last 50 to 100 years we have made the assumption that men and women will respond the same way to diets and there's this growing awareness now that we all respond differently but um, as researchers we're very much limited by the funding that we can get and so if I'm to run a study to look at the impact of x food on let's say blood pressure, for example. If I was to recruit men, I can just recruit maybe let's say 20 men into the study. 
if I was to recruit women, I would need to think about maybe recruiting only premenopausal, but then that's not representative of the female population. Or I would need to recruit 20 premenopausal, 20 perimenopausal, 20 postmenopausal women. Yeah. In addition to that, I need to think about for those premenopausal women, what stage of the menstrual cycle are they at? Do I therefore need to recruit even more premenopausal women or do I need to modify the entire study design to make sure that I'm looking at the different stages of the menstrual cycle when I'm making, in this case, my blood pressure measurements? So it becomes very costly. And for many years, and this is still the case, research funding is so, so limited. It's so challenging to get. And we have to, as researchers, be really competitive in terms of when we're asking for research funding. So it's been a real challenge, but I think things are changing now. And I think for all the listeners out there, I would hope that rather than feeling depressed about what I've said has gone before, I actually think that now a lot of funding bodies are really investing in making sure that they look at both females and males and across all stages of the life cycle. So I think the next five to 10 years, we're really going to understand even better how diet can impact our postmenopausal symptoms, but also our increased risk of disease. Yeah, I just love that we are so complex as as <laughs> you know as women. I now say to my daughters, because I was never really like that as a teenager and young person, now say to them, oh, you might be feeling more grumpy because you might be just before your period. Or I just want them to notice where they are in their cycle because I was sort of plowing through. Every day was the same and there wasn't ever allowance for, for me to be anywhere in my cycle. I had to, you know, I thought I need to run the same on my period and two weeks after. It's madness, isn't it? Especially thinking of what you're just saying, how complex and beautifully complex we are, really. Yeah, I mean, you know, it's it's such a taboo subject, whether it's your menstrual cycle or, you know, people still talk in hushed tones. Oh, you know, I think I'm going through the menopause. You know, friends that I know well, you know, outside the school gates when I collect my kids, it's like whispered hushed tones. And it's such a shame, but I think it's changing. And I think this is why it's exciting that not just we're talking about it more, but that there's more money being invested in research in this area, which I think is really promising. And it's promising because we don't know that much about how diet impacts menopausal symptoms. But what we do know is that diet can really help to attenuate some of the increased risk associated with menopause and also associated with some of the cancer therapies that you talked about. So blood pressure, for example, blood cholesterol, blood glucose control, adiposity, so weight around the waist, and microbiome as well, which we know is interrelated with cancer treatments. Mm. We can leverage diet and other lifestyle factors. And often, like you mentioned, just by making what I call micro changes to actually have quite a big impact. So it really is about knowing what you need to focus on, what works for you, but also what fits in with your normal lifestyle as well. Yeah. Let's go into some of those sort of um, examples. How can we use diet to, to help us with any of those sort of chronic side effects of an early onset menopause? Yeah, so what I'd love to do first, Danny, is step back and put diet into 
the, the context of the big puzzle, if that's okay. Yeah. yeah so yeah. I think that when we think about diet and how it might help us with these chronic conditions, we, we shouldn't look at it in isolation. And this is what our research is really clearly showing us now. And so I think of it as a puzzle. And so our health is a puzzle and how diet is one of the pieces of that puzzle. And we can only see what that puzzle is, what that picture is, is if we actually try and look at all of those pieces and fit them together. And so I often break it down into four different main groupings. So how our health is impacted by our diet is partly determined by who we are. So factors like the menopause, like whether you're on HRT, like whether you're male or female, your age, your microbiome, your genetics. It's also shaped by what you eat. And by what we eat, I don't mean just the macronutrients that we typically think of, you know, fat, protein, fiber, carbohydrate, but also the actual food that these nutrients are encapsulated within and which we know has a really important impact on modulating how those nutrients impact your health. And we call this the food matrix. So we've got the who you are, we've got the what you eat, which most people will just focus on the what you eat. But really interestingly, you've got this whole area of emerging evidence around the importance of how you eat. Mm. And so by how you eat, I mean the time of day that you're eating, how much sleep you've had, your meal ordering, you know, what you eat for breakfast can partly impact how you respond to your lunch meal. You know, your fasting window. So many people are practicing time-restricted eating, for example. And so that's three big pieces of the puzzle. So we've got the who you are, the what you eat, the how you eat. And they all interact with each other. They can't be looked at in isolation. They don't give us a single puzzle each. They have to be put together. And then overlaid onto that, that we can't ignore, I think, when we're really giving anyone any advice is why. Why are we making the dietary choices that we're making? We mustn't forget this because ultimately food is there to bring us pleasure, in my opinion. Hmm. And we need to think about how is it linked to your culture? How is it linked to your emotions? How is it linked to your, your social setting? Are you out with friends, you know, eating or as part of a family? Or are you making the dietary choices that you're making because of what we call your built environment? So what you have access to. Do you live in a home that has only a microwave or only a hob or you know, freezer? Or you know, are you physically able to get to the shops? What, what's affordable to you as well as accessible? So I always think when we're thinking about diet, we Huge. need to think of the, the who, the what, the how. The how is what I'm particularly excited about <laughs> and the why. And what's mm. great about this, I think, Danny, is that you can therefore choose what part of that you want to focus on. So it's not a case of saying to everyone, OK, we know that when you're postmenopausal, your blood sugar response to a carbohydrate rich meal is worse than when you're premenopausal. That's what our research shows. But does that mean I'm going to tell everyone to go and not have a cake or have a biscuit if that brings them pleasure? No, what we can do is we can advise people how they can still have foods that they enjoy, but maybe change the way that they're eating them. So if we could use cake as an example and, and the blood sugar response as an example. So what we know from our research is that postmenopausal women, when they consume carbohydrate-rich foods, will have a higher circulating blood sugar response to a premenopausal woman. And what we know is we 
that this isn't due to age. So we've actually taken in our research a whole group of age-matched individuals. So people of a similar age, some of who are post and some of who are pre-menopausal, and even women of the same age, if you're post, so just due to the loss, loss of estrogen, you have a more unfavorable blood sugar response to a carbohydrate-rich meal, which means from a very practical sense, you need to be thinking about the types of carbohydrates you're having so that you can prevent having really big excursions in your blood sugar uh, response. But if we go back to thinking about that cake that you want to have, it doesn't mean you can't have that cake. Firstly, you could think about if it's homemade, changing some of the ingredients to be a little bit healthier in that cake. So if it's uh, acceptable to you using more healthy oils like olive oil when you're cooking with it, which we know dampens down some of the unfavorable effects of blood sugar spikes, using less refined carbohydrates with it as well. But you can also think about for example, when you're having that cake. So we know, for example, that most people are more insulin sensitive in the morning, which means that if you have carbohydrates in the morning, you tend to have a lower blood sugar response to having, um, using the cake example, that cake in the afternoon. And so having it mid-morning rather than late in the evening, you're not going to have such an unfavorable effect. Mm. having a really short walk after or if you're stuck at your desk mm. and you can't walk even just twitching your legs there's some great research that that's come out from a group that we collaborate with that shows that if you twitch your legs I don't know if you can try doing it I'm trying to do it now it's the solid well, muscle on the back of your leg like like um uh your clench clench your legs <laughs> Is it your legs or your bum cheeks? What are we your changing, legs, Sarah? Your, legs, your, your bottom, your bottom uh, from your knee down to your heel. <laughs> oh, okay. Clench them. Yes, yes. <laughs> um, but there's some, interestingly, there's evidence to show if you have a high carbohydrate lunch or breakfast or snack or whatever, but you're sitting at your desk, so you can't have that walk, which we know can reduce some of that blood sugar. Response. If you just sit there clenching your legs, 10 minutes or so that will wow. reduce your blood sugar response by up to 30 percent wow wow but up to 30 percent yeah yeah that's now it's, low. It's, it's highly variable I always have to of say course, that between of course, individuals but that's, that, that's the average but yeah that's big and so mm. and I wanted to use that just as a way of illustrating that you don't always have to change what you're eating to have benefits mm. you can change how you're eating it and because I think sorry to interrupt because I think from the questions I've had in in preparing to talk to you and from my own journey of what's changed, much of the focus has only ever been on one of those four areas and one of those four pieces of the puzzles. And that yep. was very much what's on my plate. And actually, I think in the early days when I made really big dietary changes, I almost excluded myself from family and friends. So I cooked a meal for myself, a meal for my husband, a meal for the children, because I was so keen on eating courgette spaghetti or whatever it was 10 years ago, you know. Um, and so actually that probably didn't, wasn't favoursome to any of the other areas because yeah. I then wasn't eating quite so much with my family. I would feed the kids and then eat myself or the other way around. And so that probably had negative effects on some of the other areas, which is interesting. If your sole focus is too narrow, it's not always helpful, is it? Yeah, and um, do you know what? There's something I always say at the end of every conference talk that I give to academics when I talk about my research. I always say that if a food is too healthy to be enjoyed, 
Mm. in any context, then it's just not healthy at all. And I think yeah. what you've just said is a great example. Now, yeah. I'm not I'm not suggesting people shouldn't choose healthy foods. You should. But you need mm. to find a healthy food and a healthy diet that you enjoy and brings you pleasure, but that fits in the way that you've said with being able to eat with your family, if that's what's important to you or your friends or enabling you to do the things that you want to do. And I yeah. think that's key. And I think that you know, there's some really simple dietary recommendations that we should all be following. And that I think perhaps are even more important postmenopausally, but also for people going through cancer treatment, because it might help in terms of reducing some of these knock-on side effects as well. And these are some very basic principles that I'm sure lots of people follow, but that actually don't involve making these huge changes that you talked about, I think. So we know the evidence around reducing our processed food is very strong now for reducing our risk of chronic diseases, including cancer, Um, not all cancers, but some, but particularly reducing our risk of cardiovascular disease and type 2 diabetes, blood pressure, uh, cholesterol, glucose, all of these other factors that you talked about that postmenopausally women are more susceptible, but also you mentioned that people, depending on the cancer treatment, might have increased risk of. So to reduce your ultra-processed food, if you can, is a really mm. obvious one. It's a challenge. Mm. You know, mm. 50 to 65% of our energy in the UK comes from ultra-processed foods. Yeah. So it's really difficult, particularly if you've got young families, you're working full-time or you're not feeling great. It's very mm. easy to go mm. for ultra-processed food. So what I'm saying is don't try and eliminate them because that's just, I think, setting most people up for, for failure and therefore disappointment. Evidence shows if you can just reduce your intake of ultra-processed foods by even only 10%, that can have a really significant impact on your risk of many diseases. And so it's, again, thinking about not making macro changes. You've got to, you know, like all New Year's resolutions fail nearly, don't they? Because everyone makes these unrealistic (laughs) resolutions. And so say, okay, this week I'm just going to try and eat a little bit less of these ultra processed foods these pre-packaged foods that don't resemble anything like their original food Mm. and then another top tip I think is increasing the diversity of the natural plant-based foods that you eat so we know without doubt the importance of fiber for our health we know that fiber has so many favorable uh, effects on risk factors that we talked about on our blood sugar on our blood cholesterol And we also know it's the food to feed our gut microbiome, which we know has a far reaching health effects across everything from mental health to cardiovascular Mm. disease to gut health and even might be involved in uh, like some immunomodulatory effects as well. And so if we can increase the diversity of the plant-based foods that we're having, what that means is we're having a diversity of different types of fiber because there's different types of fiber that feeds different bugs, bugs in our gut. But also we're having a diversity of what we call phytochemicals. And phytochemicals are these very special chemicals that are found in foods. There's lots and lots of different phytochemicals that all have slightly different roles. And these include chemicals like polyphenols. So yeah. polyphenols are the chemicals that come from the really colourful fruits and vegetables. 
And I often refer to them as firefighters um, because they dampen down that inflammatory response that you might have post-meal or due to any other stresses. So they act like firefighters in your body. And again, it's about having that diversity. And so mm. the, the target that's often given is go for 30 different plant-based foods um, a week. Now, for some people, that's just not possible. I mean, if I was to try to do that for my kids who eat about a selection of two different vegetables a week and that's it, it's hard. But you can do simple tricks again, you know, add a mixed herb or mixed spices to, you know, something that you're cooking. Even if it's the small amount, you can hide them in there. Try and add some pulses to your food. Again, you know, my kids won't will eat spaghetti bolognese. They won't eat any pulses. So I hope they never listen to this, but I hide in a little <laughs> cup of pulses that I liquidize in it just, and they don't notice it. I add yeah. in a few mixed herbs. If they knew I was adding them in, they'd be horrified. Because <laughs> when you talk it. about 30 different, I, I think people always think it's 30 different fruits or vegetables, but actually no. it could be nuts and pulses, couldn't Absolutely. it? Absolutely. Yeah. yeah. Mm. So nuts, pulses, seeds, mm. yes, fruits and vegetables, um, herbs and spices. They all have different chemicals, different properties, and can fight different fires. And I think having that diversity then means that you're covering all of your bases to a certain extent. And I think that's key. But making it work for you. So I like quite a dull diet. So I don't achieve my 30 a week, rarely. But what I started doing is I quite like... Oh, Sarah, I can't believe that. <laughs> it's easy. Well, <laughs> I, I'm being honest. I don't think it is really. That easy. Yeah. Although yeah, yeah. I, my my hack now is I start my day with granola and, and yogurt. Um, yeah. And it's a little bit of shop bought granola. I add in some chopped nuts and seeds, and then there's like a berry dried mix that um, you know I've got from the supermarket. Add those in. Yeah. And I realised this morning actually that I'm probably just from that breakfast when I thought about the ingredients, getting about 15 different types of plants because mm. of all the exactly. herbs. Yeah. Mm. Um, it's the rest of the, the day that I need to improve. <laughs> <laughs> That's refreshing to hear, I'm sure, for everyone at home. <laughs> I want to go back to those four sort of areas of eating yep. and um, talk me through those four again. So it's who you are. So it's who you are. So yeah. it's your genetics, it's your yeah. age, it's your sex, it's your microbiome, it's uh, what you eat. So yeah. it's the food, the nutrients, the structure of the food, the, the 20,000 chemicals that actually we now know are in foods rather than mm -hmm. just the four mm -hmm. macronutrients. It's how you eat the food, the time mm -hmm. of day, the meal ordering, your sleep, your exercise, mm -hmm. eating rate. Well, we're doing some great research on that, but I mustn't. I get overexcited as soon as the, uh, chewing. I remember chewing. It's the chewing, <laughs> chewing probably. And eating, yeah, right? yeah, yeah. And then the why, the why yeah. you're making those choices. Yeah. Okay. And are you saying that these four sort of areas of the puzzle are equally important? Is it equally important to look at the why I eat, for example, or the how I eat, as to the nutrient on my plate? So I think it's going to vary from person to person, and it also yeah. will vary depending on what health outcome measure we're interested in. By that, I mean, are we mainly interested in tackling our blood cholesterol levels or our blood mm. glucose levels or the weight around our belly? So we know from the research we've done on the Zoe Predict studies that each of these factors contribute differently 
to a different extent, depending on which of those um, outcomes you're interested in. Yeah. Obviously, I think the why is the starting point for everything because yeah. that ultimately mm. shapes all of those other factors. Mm. And so mm. I think that's key to think about, well, why why am I making those choices? Mm. And, and I think for most of our listeners today, it'll be, oh my gosh, I've had cancer. And so sometimes there's a bit of a loss of trust in our body. Something's yep. happened. We didn't always notice. I was sitting there with a tumour and didn't really feel any different. It's a weird bodily, outer body experience almost. So there's a bit of a, I've got to make changes because whatever has happened before didn't quite work in my favor. And then there's obviously the worry about, oh my gosh, I've now had all these treatments. What is my body going to be disadvantaged because of me being menopause or much earlier than the average um, woman? And so I think our whys are quite clear. Without talking about the individual foods, what can we change about how we eat or when we eat or with whom we eat or if we go for a walk after we eat that can already help us a little bit towards better long-term overall health? I think because we're talking so general, it's better overall long-term health, isn't it, that we want to, I guess, address yeah, and you know there is no silver bullet. There's no magic magic fix. So I think it's recognizing that, regardless of who you are or what circumstances you've gone through, what for for anyone faced with any yeah. health issue, in most cases, isn't that silver bullet, which is difficult, and which is why I think that there's a lot of people doing podcasts that are offering silver bullets that actually it's a, a lot of nutri-nonsense as I call it. <laughs> yeah. So, so mm. my answer to your question is a rather dull one, I'm afraid, but it's an honest one based on the evidence that we have that I think that the evidence around basic health eating principles, healthy lifestyle uh, principles will make up the biggest difference and have the biggest benefit. Within that, though, you can do micro changes. So within that, for example, if we take the how you eat, there's some evidence to show that time restricted eating might be favorable for women who are postmenopausal, might even be favorable in terms of reducing some of the side effects of chemotherapy, although that's very, very early stages of research. Um, and so if it works for you and it fits within how you live your life, then you could try avoiding late night eating, which we know there is strong evidence that is unfavorable in terms of our metabolic or cardiometabolic, these um, disease risk factors that postmenopausal women are at higher risk of avoiding eating after eight o'clock and trying to eat within a 10 hour window. But what's really important, I think, when I make any suggestions is to note none of these are going to have, you know, one single huge transformational impact because it's about many little micro changes that accumulatively will have an impact. At the heart of a lot of the how we eat is sleep. And I know that this impacts a lot of peri and postmenopause women. So it's a really tricky one because it's difficult for me to say, well, make sure you get a good night's sleep. I'm sure I know. And that causes a good night's more sleep. anxiety <laughs> sometimes, doesn't it? It's oh, then you think, gosh. oh my gosh. Yeah, yeah, yeah. But it's about recognizing, okay, I've had a crap night's sleep and knowing that my body's going to respond a little bit differently today. Yeah. Mm. So if we touch on sleep maybe for a minute, what we know from our own research is if you've had a poor night's sleep, then your blood sugar response the next day is going to be worse than when you've had a good night's sleep. So if you have that cake in the morning, 
that we talked about earlier, your blood sugar response the morning after you've had a bad night's sleep is going to be a little bit worse than the day you've had a good night's sleep. Mm -hmm. That might not impact you or you might be someone that's more sensitive to it. So it means that you might have you know, this big peak, you might have a dip, which makes you, you know, two to four hours later, which makes you feel more hungry, a little bit brain foggy, a little bit fed up, and then craving more sugar. Yeah, what we also know is if you've had a poor night's sleep, the reward centers in your brain are heightened. So your reward centers are actually shouting out to you saying, Danny, you've had a night's sleep, go and eat that cake. (laughs) Go and have (laughs) that white Mm. bread, go and have that pastry, Mm. don't have your normal healthy, you know, yes, yeah. So that sometimes it's about being a little bit mindful, forgiving of yourself saying, yeah, okay, I have had a bad night's sleep. And I've got this little devil in my head telling me to go and eat all of these bad foods. I know they're going to also have the worst effect on my metabolic health and also set me off potential on this roller coaster of glucose yes. and dips. So today, maybe I do you know what I feel so rubbish. I've had a night's sleep. Bad night's sleep. I'm going to do it. it doesn't matter. I want that cake. Or you might be feeling the next day, uh, having had, let's say, a bad night's sleep again, <laughs> that, you know what, today I'm, I'm going to actually, I, I can make the effort to maybe avoid what my brain's telling me I need this morning and go yeah. for something that is a little bit healthier. So I think mm. there's the case of being gentle, but thinking of the bigger picture and thinking day to day as well, how things are going to change for you day to day. And it's also knowing what you've just explained gives us an explanation of why perhaps we have those food cravings, because otherwise I speak to so many women and I know it from myself. We think, oh, I'm weak. I've had a rubbish night's sleep. And then you wake up and then all you crave is is the unhealthier options or foods that you've got at home. You go to the shop and you buy what you don't actually want to buy. And then you think, oh, I'm so weak. Everyone around me manages to have all these healthy diets and I'm just rubbish. And so there's this blame this negative yep. self-talk. And again, that makes you feel worse throughout the day, doesn't it? And it's it's negativity all around. But understanding what you've just explained, perhaps we can be a bit more self-compassionate and say, actually, I haven't been able to sleep very well. Instead of beating myself up for craving, I understand what my body is doing, what's happening on the inside. And perhaps I can treat myself to a nice pear or, you know, because we know treating ourselves to really healthy foods, that's the actual yeah. treat. The yeah. cake isn't the treat, but yeah. Being forgiving and, and yeah. also, you know, what's one day? Okay, if it's every single day, what's one day? You know, what does it really matter? Is it going to make you yeah. feel happy? Fine. You know, thinking about what you're saying about beating ourselves up, I think it's really important to recognise other challenges postmenopausally that we face. I don't think are talked about as well in terms of, we're kind of, we're on that um, trying to go, oh, what's the expression? Up the downward escalator. I can't <laughs> remember what the expression is. <laughs> um, I know what you mean. You, yeah. Okay. <laughs> I, can't, I, I, I can't think <laughs> now. Damn it. Anyway, um, so there's lots of other changes that happen postmenopausally. So we have to remember that we have estrogen receptors on nearly every cell in our body. So yeah. estrogen impacts so much. And, you know, we often talk about just those core symptoms or maybe, you know, blood cholesterol or something. And we forget all of these other areas that actually they impact. And so interestingly, I learned only recently that estrogen Mm. or lack of estrogen impacts our hunger. And Mm. so you often hear women anecdotally saying, oh, I'm just hungry all the time. And I'm eating the same, but I'm hungry. 
and oh what can I do and I feel so bad well don't feel bad your body has changed yeah your estrogen levels have changed and so you that's why you're feeling more hungry you're not weak you know Mm. your your body which is really clever is actually being a little bit annoying (laughs) at the moment and it's telling you you're more hungry same with weight around the waist you know I'm eating the same so I was always doing I'm exercising the same but I keep putting on weight around my waist well estrogen redirects where the fat is deposited on your body typically when you're premenopausal it's depositing it around your hips you have that pear shape once you lose the estrogen therefore it's not directing it there and it's directing it to your waist so you're not doing anything wrong your body your estrogen levels that's where things are going wrong not you not your willpower and I think it's really really important we remember that and also in a bigger picture there is nothing wrong with starting to look different. I think society has brainwashed us into having these hourglass figures, perhaps all of our lives. And the expectation is you should look like that in your seventies as you looked in your thirties. Well, it's unrealistic. It's, it doesn't make sense, but we've sort of been brainwashed and maybe once we can all accept that it's okay to start looking different and to not having to love it or embrace it, or you don't have to love your wrinkles. I understand that, but to accept it as a normal process, it also becomes a little bit easier, doesn't it? I mean, I have to remind myself daily, you know, it's nothing. I love the changes in my body. And sometimes I just have to say to myself, Danny, it's normal. I look at myself in the mirror and go, it's normal. Stop it. (laughs) Yeah, and you know what's a real shame is, you know, every day in the newspaper, oh, Jennifer Lopez, doesn't she look amazing? She's 50-something, look at those abs, look at that body. The next day, oh, Jennifer Lopez, look at that bit of cellulite on, you know, that top bit of her thigh. I mean, you know, we're up against it because we see, firstly, the perfection, the unrealistic perfection, and then another day we'll see all the criticism that, God forbid it, a woman's let her body change because she's postmenopausal. But knowing what you've said now is if I feel more hungry if I'm in menopause post the cancer treatment, then we know that's normal. It's what your body does and it's how your body reacts and it's a normal thing, not something we want to combat or fight against because then we're continuously swim against upstream aren't we and it's hard work and exhausting all I'm thinking with whilst I'm talking to you Sarah is it's like you're talking to the 30 year old me who was desperately trying to make food changes and I don't think our conversation would have satisfied me to my core yeah because sometimes the really sort of common sense tips that you're giving and the advice this is what science and all of your sort of research has shown us sometimes we feel it isn't enough so take me onto that food plate that what we eat just for three more minutes before we finish our conversation and give me some of your hacks that we (laughs) know we can do because I think if I'm feeling gosh the Danny 10 years ago she would have wanted to know from Sarah and all those 30 different research studies that you've been part of what stood out for you? Okay, so I think, again, it's about what can you change? And yeah. I think tackling one change at a time or multiple micro changes is the best way forward personally, but everything's different for, for everyone. And so a core recommendation I often make to people, now this is just my recommendation, it's not the kind of things that people would typically say, is why don't we focus on something that you typically eat 
in isolation that accounts for lots of energy intake. So uh, snacks in the UK account for 20 to 25% of our energy intake. We oh. typically eat snacks on our own. We typically have control over what snacks we're eating because we're not typically snacking with our kids or our partners or our friends. The other food intake event that is typically done in isolation or we have control over and is easy to modify is breakfast. Yeah. So breakfast accounts for about 15 to 20% of our energy. So breakfast and snacking can account for, let's say, 40% or not for everyone, but let's say 30 to 40% of our energy intake of our calories over the day. Now that's a huge amount. If you can change from it, it, if you have unhealthy snacks, I mean, many listeners might already have their healthy snacks. If you can change your snacks and breakfast, actually that makes a huge impact on your health. And yet you can still continue moderately you know with the same main meals that you might be having with your family or friends um so the kind of snack changes that we know are particularly beneficial are changing from typical uk snacks to nuts and seeds any pulse-based snacks that are unprocessed will work but i'm not suggesting everyone sits there with carrot sticks and hummus every day but the evidence around having nuts and seeds as a snack and it improving many of these health outcomes that we talked about that change postmenopausally is very strong. So I've conducted research where I've asked people to stop eating their typical snacks and change it for almond snacks, for example. I must just declare that I do have a conflict of interest that that research was funded by the Alma Board of California, um, <laughs> just to be very transparent. But by snacking on almonds versus snacking on typical snacks you see an improvement in cholesterol you see improvement in your blood vessel function in your heart rate variability so many factors that change most postmenopausal everything wow. else on that study they carried on eating the same apart from their wow snacks. breakfast again is another one most people are eating i think breakfast that doesn't set them up well for the day and mm. again finding a breakfast that you enjoy but is healthy so the kind of breakfast I now have is one that has lots of plant-based foods that I mentioned. So a granola with uh, some chopped up nuts, chopped up berries. And if you like it, you could try some kefir, which yeah. is a yogurt, which we know is also great for your microbiome. So let's say you're changing just your snacks and changing to that kind of breakfast that you're getting some prebiotic fibers some probiotic um, mm. bacteria from the kefir you're already I think setting yourself up for a really positive addition of foods and nutrients ingredients and phytochemicals to your and, diet and say we manage to do this over a longer period of time because we yep. know we need to sustain changes yep. and they need to become habits and we need to eat like that like months after or years after rather than just two weeks and then we're done if we change those at 40%, what you just said with snacks and breakfast, is that enough to then change in a, or favour in a positive way our long-term health sort of when we're postmenopausal, like our metabolic changes, like you said, blood sugar levels and heart rate and all of that, blood pressure? I believe so. Um, Amazing. Assuming that the remaining 60% you're not eating bacon sandwiches, chocolate yeah. and crisps, <laughs> assuming there's a little bit of balance in the rest of the time. And the reason but I yeah. believe so mm. is there's lots of evidence now showing how five or 10% changes in 
sources of energy intake from healthier foods, whether it be nuts, seeds, you know, etc., can actually have quite a significant impact on many different mm. health outcomes. Mm. And, you know, I, I talked at the beginning about reducing ultra-processed foods, even reducing ultra-processed foods by 10% can actually have a really huge effect on yeah. disease risk. And recent yeah. evidence shows that even 10% reduction in ultra-processed food reduces your risk of all-cause mortality, which means death from any causes, by up to about 15%. Wow. And so that's huge. So that that's shows, huge. Yeah. And it, what it shows, I think, hopefully, is yes, you don't have to do a radical, radical change. Yeah. Now, some people might want to, and this isn't something that I have any expertise or, or knowledge in around, you know, cancer and how people are feeling. So I don't, I want to be very sensitive when I say this that, you know, when you're going through something like that, people might be wanting that silver bullet or, or wanting to make more radical changes. If that's what you want to do at that point in time, then do that. But mm. if you just want to know that you are doing something with your diet, I think changing your, your breakfast and your snacks Amazing. and then trying to add in those extra herbs and extra spices into your main meals as well, whilst reducing refined carbohydrates and ultra-processed foods. That's amazing. And, you know, I think... What I'm really hearing from our conversation is that many women I speak to actually eat a good diet already. They've been yeah. following you. They've been following Tim Spector and the Zoe and a lot of the research and they actually eat a good diet and they're still saying, but what else should I do? And then perhaps yeah. I think the answer is to not look at the food plate at what you eat, but look at one of the other pieces of your puzzle yep. and really wonder why is it that I'm still feeling I'm not doing enough? And is this a real need that comes from, that is going to be satisfied from more macronutrients? Or is this something that I need to look at that is more a psychological desire that might, you know, I always felt like very reassured by eating very healthily and more anxious if I wasn't. And perhaps some of those needs and desires we have aren't actually going to ever be answered by what's on our plate, but they might come from looking at it from an emotional perhaps mm -hmm. point of view, because it's ever so interlinked, isn't it? What we're hoping our dietary changes are going to give us. Yeah. And we know as well as the interlink between, you know, how you're feeling and your dietary choices also, you know, feeding back to that, that there's really good evidence now to show that what you eat can impact how you feel, can impact your mood, can impact your mental health, partly probably mediated by the microbiome, not fully. And so there's like this bi-directional process that what you're eating can impact your mental health, but your mental health impacts what you're eating. But I think that you've raised a really important point that for people who are already eating healthy, they want to eat healthier. They want some more answers. They want to know what more they can do. And I'll be really honest, I struggle with this because yeah. I am a great believer in balance. I am a great believer of a little bit of what's bad for you can be good for you occasionally. Yeah. Yeah. You know, I'm a little bit of a believer in being kind to yourself and making sure you know, you're, you're enjoying the food that you're eating first and mm. foremost and mm. so I can't give the answer to what else can I be doing other than yeah. what's actually quite obvious I think to most people yeah and so your I belief can... system isn't something that is just personal your belief system is totally um, impacted by the many research studies you've conducted and led 
and yeah. by the evidence you've had from that. And I think if anyone is taking anything away from our conversation, that's not to buy more almonds, although that's a great tip. That's definitely, <laughs> if you're eating a good diet. Then any nuts, any nuts, not just almonds. Any nuts. <laughs> All nuts as well. <laughs> then perhaps how you're eating is already good enough. And perhaps some listeners can walk away from our conversation today thinking, I'm doing enough. I'm enough with the effort I'm making. And yes, I can tweak here left, right and centre, but actually what I'm doing is perhaps already good enough. And and that's, I think, a lovely way to end our conversation because it's definitely what I've taken away. Good. I'm really glad. And I would point listeners to a podcast that we do as well at Zoe, which yeah, is Zoe yeah. Health and Nutrition Podcast. And that podcast is very much geared to giving people evidence-based suggestions. So we have different scientists on every week and it's all about those micro changes. So yes. I think that that people might find that useful. And also myth busting that you know yes. doing X, Y, or Z is a load of nonsense. So And I love the um I love that podcast because I often think, gosh, um, what oil? What oil? And then I keep going on to Google and then people talk <laughs> about different oils. And I think, no, I just go and see what Zoe, and then we do a <laughs> podcast episode on what oils and and it's really simple to understand. So I, I do love that. Right. Um so that's great. Thank you so much, Sarah. It's been fabulous to talk to you. Yeah. Thank you. Great. Pleasure. Now, how are you feeling after listening to the lovely Dr. Sarah Berry? It's um, it's fascinating, isn't it? Once you speak to a researcher who's conducted and run so many human nutrition studies. And really what I was hearing from her is that we don't need to make loads of fancy changes we don't need to go into biohacking but to just reduce our overall consumption of processed foods even by 10 percent if that can make a real impact on how you know for our overall long-term health and mortality even isn't that amazing and so i think sarah's suggestion of perhaps if you walk away from this podcast and you want to do something Perhaps instead of thinking, what else can I add onto my plate and the macronutrients, think of an area of how you're eating in a day. Is it your snacks for you? Is it your breakfast, like Sarah was suggesting? Or perhaps it's dinners for you. Perhaps it's your lunches that you need to improve on. And let's all walk away thinking, which area of eating would I like to improve on a little bit? For me, it's definitely snacks. And I know in the past I have, when I'm prepared, it's for me, it's all in the preparation. And in a good old saying, if you fail to plan, then you're planning to fail. And so I've got loads of empty jam jars downstairs and I do need to go back and refill them with healthy nuts and seeds. I like to have a date in between with my nuts and seeds. I know peanut butter with apple is a lovely snack for me. I love celery sticks with with almond butter, for example. I really love that. But it's reminding myself of all those healthy snacks and it's then bringing them out, almost putting them onto the kitchen counter. Like once a week, steaming some lovely edamame beans and just shelled ones and having them on the side. And every time I walk into the kitchen to maybe make a cup of tea, if I'm feeling peckish, if they're there, if they're in sight, I'm going to go and reach for them. And so I think it's making a list. It's planning a little bit for this one area of foods that you want to improve in or improve on and then planning so that you can actually set yourself up for success. I think that's one of the main things I heard from Sarah. And I hope for many of you who I know have already tinkered with your diet, I know many of you have already changed and improved on how you're eating. I hope 
Sarah's conversation is also quite reassuring that you're making many, many amazing steps for your long-term health already. And perhaps you can walk away from this conversation with a big pat on your back, thinking I'm not doing too badly here. Whatever it is that you took away from the conversation, I hope it's been helpful. Yes, we're going to talk about the nitty gritty much more on what goes on your plate. And we'll talk about more sort of symptom management and food in upcoming episodes. But I hope today has been insightful from an incredible force of nature. And yeah, I'm really grateful Sarah came onto the podcast today. Wishing you a good week and I hope everything is well in your part of the world and I'll catch you next week on the show.